Welcome to the Happy Mindset, episode 105. Today's episode is called Screw Being Shy. Today I'm joined by Mark Mitri. Mark is an author, a podcast host, and a speaker. We've had Mark on the podcast before, actually, uh, Humans 2.0. That was the episode, I think it was fart in the 40s around there. But I've had Mark on the podcast again because in the last few months, he's published his first book called Screw Being Shy. Met up with Mark as well in November. He's a decent guy. I like him. And I just wanted to have him on again to talk about his book and to talk about his journey. So that's what we touch on today. How we went from somebody who's very shy to being somebody now who's got a podcast. And his podcast, Humans 2.0, he talks to a lot of high-profile people. So there's anywhere from billionaires to Pulitzer Prize-winning authors to neuroscientists. And what I like about Mark from reading his book as well and just following some of his work is that he's got a big emphasis on science and nutrition as well. He talks about that, the effect that has on mental health. But he also as well like looks at the deeper stuff. So it's not just even about that. He looks at the deeper stuff and he tries to make it practical. That's what I like about his approach. So that's it. That's what that's that's who I'm talking to today. I have an offer at the moment as well for my book, uh, Taking My Life Back. For the next five days, it'll be freely available on Amazon Kindle. So if, you, if you're interested in that, if you haven't read the book yet, then I'll put a link in the show notes as well. So you can find Mark's book, uh, Screw Being Shy, and you'll find my book as well, Taking My Life Back. That'll be free for the next five days up until Monday. And Or you can go to my website, thehappymindset.com. You'll find a book there. Click in there and you'll, you'll get the book. So that's it. Thanks again for listening and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Okay, so thanks for joining us today, Mark. Yo, man, it's such a great time to... Uh, to be talking to you on this podcast and it was great to see you in november when we met up in ireland that was awesome yeah that was good time. yeah yeah that's the that's the thing about podcasts actually the online world sometimes you can meet up with people in real life like you're in america you just happen to be in ireland yeah so it was good to actually spend some time with you but yeah for sure i mean it definitely made our world smaller yeah so anyway my first question for you is who are you and what are you doing in the world today Oh man, uh, my name is Mark Mantry and I'm honestly sitting in a corner of my house <laughs> because um, this whole <laughs> coronavirus outbreak, I um, originally lived in uh, Boston but moved out of the city and now I'm living in my parents and my sister and, her, and my baby niece were living in New York but New York got terrible so they left. And now they are uh, here with us. So, yeah, I mean, right now I'm just trying to focus on, uh, like you said before, taking things day by day because, um, you know, not much has changed in my life, but definitely a lot uh, has changed uh, considering this. And so for me, author, podcast host, uh, speaker, advisor, board member, uh, Rapper, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, musician, although I'm dabbling in it. Um, a writer. And I really just, for me, the main thing is I'm always trying to explore the human condition when it comes to um, sort of our mental, emotional, spiritual, physical freedom. That for me is one of the top priorities because I kind of felt like I lived a life where I didn't really have freedom. And it's not like I necessarily have complete freedom to do everything I want to do today, but I'm talking about the freedom of like inside of your own head to a degree. 
you know, because I remember growing up and I kind of felt like I was a prisoner to my head and I wasn't really making conscious decisions. And so kind of growing up and then, you know, starting my podcast, speaking with a lot of people all over the world, I've had like the co-founder of Netflix on my, on my show, uh, people, doctors, neuroscientists that talk about mental health. And I've had entrepreneurs and like billionaires on my show that have told me, you know, they've never been more depressed or suicidal when they had $750 million in their bank account. <laughs> and so when you really like, when you hear those things, it's just like, you know, this is what I've decided to focus my life on, at least for now. Um, so yeah, that's what I do. It's cool, man. There's a lot of variety to what you do. Like how did that happen? Like become an author, a podcaster, an advisor, like, was that like a sequence that happened in or was it more of a, an amalgamation of things just happening? Um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, all these things just kind of came at once in terms of, um, so for me, I mean, when I was 18 years old, uh, and today I'm 22, when I was 18 years old, I uh, was a completely different person from who I am today. And uh, I had extreme social anxiety I had no friends as a result of that. I definitely re used substances. I was overweight, um, depressed. At one time, I was even suicidal in my life. And then eventually, um, it was that kind of me hitting rock bottom when I was 18 that kind of really enabled me to wake up to myself. And ever since then, you know, it wasn't an overnight success or anything. Ever since then, you know, I started a business that's a marketing agency. And then eventually after that, I started my podcast. And for me, I just kind of started the podcast. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just kind of using it as a tool to just learn from people who are smarter than me. And uh, that just sort of took on a life of its own. And it enabled me to really explore anything in the world that I really want to talk about from the world's best experts. And so you know, that has taken me on a wild journey and eventually led me to kind of realizing the importance of what I'm talking about today. And then, you know, all these things began to add up. Like a year after I started my podcast, I was invited to speak at an event for the first time, just randomly in Boston. Um, and then these things begin to add up. And then in like last year, last year, um, a few months actually, before I went to Ireland, uh, towards the, towards like the the beginning or the second half of the year, I realized that I needed to write this book called Screw Being Shy. That's all about social anxiety and being yourself. Because as you know, as many self improvement books as I read, being in this industry, I had yet to see somebody that kind of addressed something like this, um, with sort of not just the life that I've lived, but also who I am, like being an entrepreneur and seeing that social anxiety can be a, a real limiter on your life to say the least. And, um, and yeah, so I, once I sort of came up with the culmination of these ideas, eventually I put it into a book and I released it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think all these things just add up together. I just try to be present every day. I meditate. I try, I try to practice mindfulness, just try to hit these things day after day. And then next thing you know, you just sort of look your head up and you're like, oh, wow, I did all that. So it's been a very interesting ride. Yeah. 
did there, like when you realized that it was time to write a book, what was that like? Was it like a, a thought that came into your head or like, was it like a feeling that you've completed a stage of your life or? Yeah, I remember it was, uh, it was, I was in Los Angeles cause I was speaking at an event and the day before the event, I couldn't fall asleep at night. And it was because my head kept telling me like, you have to write this book because there are so many people out there that are struggling with this issue and there's not really a clear solution out there. And so um, eventually I began to do that. And then literally like the next day at breakfast, I remember waking up and then literally just like, like writing down just like a ton of ideas uh, in my head um, and like how I, how I wanted to think about it. And then I remember like a day after when I was coming home uh, on the flight, it's like a five, six hour flight. I, um, literally just started to write the book for the whole like five hours. And I remember I was on a different flight, like later next week. And I remember looking back at what I had written and I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever read in my life. Like what, what kind of third grader, what kind of little kid wrote this? And so I remember I deleted the whole thing and I restarted. And so I did that a few times and then I had to remove things, go back. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really how it began. But ultimately, um, you know, like I'm, uh, I'm already working on a, um, on an updated edition for the book because, um, you know, I really wanted to get this book out there because uh, I think it's just super needed. And a lot of people have really been helped by this book that have reached out to me already. Um, and it like just came out. So, um, so yeah, it's been super, super, uh, interesting, but yeah. What was, it, what was the process like that when you, um, <clears throat> When you're writing the book, did you write in like a, in a sequence from start to finish or was it like just ideas that you put on pages and then they kind of came together? Yeah. So the biggest thing that I realized was, and I actually, I actually remember doing this when I was in Ireland. <laughs> remember after I had saw you in the next day, uh, I think the biggest thing that I could say is that um, I realized that I needed to go through a sequence that... Um, is is really step one about talking about the root cause and then talking about more conceptual ideas that people can understand that um that are very deep and then going into kind of the more practical uh things that someone can do and then going into how someone can actually use this in their day-to-day life and so um that's probably the biggest sequence for me because i feel like i've read so many books that and there's been a there's a lot of great books there's a lot of great books for sure um but i feel like sometimes authors uh they write way too much and they they talk about so many details and it's just sometimes it's unnecessary sometimes it is necessary um but uh but for me i just wanted to have something that was very sort of simple talks about the root cause talks a little bit about my story so as like sort of a vehicle that someone can use to understand what i'm talking about and, um, and then go into like the, uh, like, just like the science behind it, because I think that's super, super important, especially with something like that I'm talking about, like mental health. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of the sequence that I took. So there are the lenses you looked at it through, like the root cause, the practical day-to-day living, the little bit of story so people can relate to it. It's uh, useful. So the title of the book is called Screw Being Shy. So what's your trajectory been like? Were you a really, really shy, anxious guy. That's what it seems like in the book. Like, how did you actually practically transform that? Because I think that's, that's something that a lot of people will identify with as just a part of who they are and they're stuck there. 
Yeah. So, I mean, what I would say is that, um, what I would say is that, uh, I, for about solid 10 years of my life, uh, every moment of my existence in a social situation was I would walk into a room, I'd walk into an environment and uh, I would sit down or whatever kind of the social engagement was. I would sit down and then I would look to the person next to me and um, I would always think like, wow, they're probably talking crap about me. Or I would look at my shoe and I would see like a, like a smudge on my shoe. And then I'd look at everybody else's shoe in the room and be like, wow, nobody else has that. So they probably think I'm like some poor uh, person that can't afford shoes. And then someone at like the, the beginning of the uh, room will maybe turn around to talk to somebody else and they might make like accidental eye contact with me. And then my brain will be like, wow, he just, he just gave me such a dirty look. I bet he's talking crap about me to his friend. Um, and then anytime that I would be in a social situation like that, my heart beat would be pumping. And then especially any time where I had to, like if I had to speak up or I was in a classroom or something and the teacher picked on me, immediate, or someone walked up to me and talked to me, immediate, um, my nervous system would go into a fight or flight response. My heart, my heartbeat would start pounding. My throat would clench. My palms, um, armpits would start, my forehead would start sweating. I'd feel really hot. Uh, and so that basically happened to me for, um, I saw 10 years of my life. And so for me, the real, um, the real moment where things changed for me was when I became conscious of the fact that I actually had social anxiety because previously up to that point, when I was going through this years after years, I had no idea that this was a real thing. And I just thought that there was just something wrong with me as a, as a human being, as a person that I was just a flawed human being or some sort of moral ethical failure. And so I realized it when I went to my first college party and uh, I got drunk for the first time in my life. And uh, at that party, I could walk up to anybody, any guy or girl, say whatever I wanted. And that's because alcohol is a social uh, judgment inhibitor. Um, and so after that, the next day I was like, huh, why couldn't I have been able to do that ever before throughout my entire life. And so it was almost like that contrast that made me realize like, wait, this is not who I actually am. Like this is actually like a series of, of, of loops being caught in my biology and stress and nervous system and my brain and my psychology that are causing me to not talk to people, even though I actually really do want to, you know, like I'm, I'm an introvert. There's nothing wrong with being an introvert. Um, a lot of people don't really understand what that is. And when you look at the psychology definition, uh, being an introvert is someone who is predominantly like the way that, that your brain works, the way that it, it has a tendency to run is to focus more on the internal world. And then therefore it gets energy from that. And so there's nothing wrong with that. You could be a, a quiet introvert that likes their solitude. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's also okay to be shy every once in a while. You know, that's totally natural. But there are people like kind of, you know, when I was describing what I went through and, and, uh, and kind of my past was there are people who end up developing a pattern of shyness 
in every room and no matter who they have to talk to every day. And when that happens long enough, then they develop social anxiety. And so when someone develops social anxiety, that's where literally like the whole nervous system fight or flight feedback loop between the brain and body really enabled to catch somebody in like this mental matrix prison inside their own mind where they want to talk to people and then they don't. And because relationships are such a powerful aspect of our lives, a major part of how our brain thinks about us is, is the relationships that we have. And so if you don't have good relationships because you have social anxiety, that's going to destroy your self-esteem. That's going to really put a damper on a lot of other areas of your life. And that's why when you look at like what the American, like what the United States government says for statistics about this, they say that social anxiety is not only the most common anxiety condition in America, but it's also the most correlated with substance abuse and social isolation, both of which lead to poor mental health and eventually suicide, which kills almost a million people every year, about 850,000. And so, um, and so, you know, just sort of like realizing that I was like, like, wow, this is a real legitimate kind of thing. And then when you, and then when I also begin to look at the research, um, then you also begin to see like how there are evidence-based ways that, go through this and they talk about how you can actually like do little things or big things in your life that can have a big impact that are like recorded numbers, statistics. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, that was a big part going forward in the book, but another one was just sort of me and my own journey through experimentation and, uh, and my own trials and failures. And so for me, like when I realized that the fact that I had social anxiety, I began to tackle it. And I began to be like, you know what? I'm going to start talking to people. And so I began to do that. And it actually made me more stressed and actually kind of terrified me more. And so, um, you know, that led me down like a really dark spiral in my life where I got obese. I was doing a lot of things that, I, that aren't true to my behavior, my character. And, um, and then for me, the, the real big one that enabled me to kind of rise above social anxiety was to realize how fear actually works at a biochemical level. Because what I realized was when I was trying to tackle my social anxiety and I would just try to walk up to people and then my brain would tell me like, if you walk up to this person and say something, you're going to die because it would freak me out so much. I had to realize that there are underlying biochemical uh, knobs and levers, so to speak, that can control that. And so for me, a big thing that I realized was you can, like, the best way to approach fear is not head on. There are a lot of other ways to approach fear, but the best way to approach fear is biochemically speaking. And so if you are terrified and you're just like sitting in your room or your apartment and you're like thinking through your brain, you're constantly, if your mindset and your, and your psyche and the way that your brain works is not built on, on fundamentals that are healthy, which I would say most people aren't. If you sit down and think, you're just going to be adding more fuel to your fear, which, going to, which is going to make your anxiety worse. But for example, if you stand up and you go outside and you take for a walk, if you can, then we know that a major part of anxiety is physical. And so if you walk, it not only begins to move the blood flow to your brain so your brain can think about this more efficiently and more better, it also relaxes you and calms you. And so... 
when you look at it from that way, it's like you would like, I would recommend someone instead of trying to solve a problem that you're freaking out inside your house and you're trying to brute force negotiate with fear. But if you approach it from a different angle, like for example, walking outside in the sunlight, that changes your entire physiology. And then it can make you then come up with a solution to your problem that is not necessarily fear-based. And so when I learned the, the, that basic idea and all the ways it plays out in the world, that fear is a biochemical response, then you begin to see how you can change it. Because you know previously up to that point where I didn't know I had social anxiety, the real biggest takeaway that got me to move was the fact that I realized that this is not some sort of character failure. This is not some sort of thing that is unique to me. This is a biochemical reaction, an equation that is happening. And if I can start to change the inputs, I can start to push buttons, then maybe I could get a different output. And it's going to take a while and you're not going to get it right every time. But that to me was like the big idea that I, that I realized that could really help me negotiate with fear. And the thing is, is after I began to really work on tackling fear from a biochemical standpoint, then I was finally able to walk up to people and talk to them and almost kind of use that biochemical foundation as a runway to, um, to, 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 to lift off. And so for example, like, um, you know, probably some controversial advice for people in Ireland, but drinking alcohol uh, destroys your neurotransmitters in your brain. Not all kinds of alcohol, not all amounts. You know, if you have a drink, it's not going to kill you. But that, for example, like when you wake up the next day, your brain has a depletion of dopamine, of serotonin. And if that happens all the time or every weekend, after a decade, your brain could be broken. And so that's like another major thing that people really need to understand. And when your brain is broken, you're going to be destroyed by fear. And like Dennis, I have people who listen to my podcast, who have read my book, who have told me that they can't fall asleep at night without drinking some alcohol because their literal body won't stop freaking out. And so, I mean, alcohol is a very dangerous example because most people are not using alcohol to celebrate. Most people are using alcohol to medicate themselves. And so alcohol is a terrible, terrible medicine. It's very dangerous for that reason. And so yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of the, the big idea that I think if I could get across to people to understand fear at a biochemical level, then it'll completely change their relationship with it. And it'll make sort of exposing themselves to fear directly much easier. Mm. Okay, so you tackled it by approaching your physiology first. There was true food as well. It was another thing, a big thing in the book you talk about, your diet. Yeah, so, so, that's, so that's crazy, right? So, I mean, so the thing with food is this, right? So... So we know, for example, like um, if you take someone who consumes the American standard diet, I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but I assume it's generally the same thing. Uh, a ton of refined carbohydrates, a ton of like these little um, uh, 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 like uh, sugary wheat, grain, crackers, biscuits, cookies, um, those things and other things like soda, um, candy, all that stuff, anything that has sugar in it. They've shown a graph of someone's mood and energy throughout the day who, who, who normally consumes a, a normal standard American diet. And they've showed that it's up, down, up, down, up, down. Because what happens is when your blood glucose level 
crashes because it was never meant to eat the foods that we eat today. Like most of the food that you find at a supermarket hasn't existed for like more than 50 years or more than a, than more than a hundred years. And so it is completely unsustainable for our brain and our body's physiology because for most of human evolution, we grew up not in cities, not in the industrial revolution, not when we were making things. And so it takes a long time for evolution to catch up. And so most people are stuck in this sort of graph of their mood and energy of up, down, up, down, up, down. And then you take someone who has depression, anxiety, or even bipolar or other mood disorders, it's the same exact thing, up, down, up, down, up, down. And so when you look at it that way, um, there have been so many studies that correlate increased anxiety, increased depression when it comes to somebody who consumes a lot of sugar, a lot of carbohydrates, a lot of alcohol. And so um, that's one way that food impacts us, but that's not the main way. The main way that food impacts us is this, right? So a big thing of the whole biochemical aspect that I realized is that, you know, not to get too empirical or not to get too scientific because I definitely, I'm, I'm definitely a spiritual person. But I believe that life is essentially a series of your brain firing neurotransmitters and secreting different brain chemicals. So like happiness, sadness looks like a chemical combination in your brain. Like there are graphs, there are charts to talk about this. And there's a particular neurotransmitter in specific called serotonin. Serotonin is talked about from mental health communities to leadership communities like Simon Sinek talks about it. And essentially serotonin, it does a lot of things in our body from regulating our mood to our sleep to our functioning in social groups. And so there's literally a neurotransmitter in our brain called serotonin that literally controls how we behave in groups and social interactions. And so this is extremely, extremely important for people who have social anxiety and then quite frankly, many other kinds of mental health issues because it plays on the same receptor. It's just various variations depending on the person. And they've showed that for like the last 20 years, most of the science was assuming that because serotonin is a neurotransmitter, it's got to be in our brain. And it turns out that's only partially true. Turns out only 5 to 10% of serotonin in our entire system is in our brain. 90 to 95% of our serotonin is actually in this thing called the gut microbiome. And I don't know if you know what this is or not, but the gut microbiome is a, a vast ecosystem of trillions of bacteria between our stomach and intestines that you know, have formed a symbiotic relationship with human beings for thousands of years. So not a lot of people know this, but when we eat foods, there's a lot of foods that we, our human body, our human cells can't actually digest. And so our gut microbiome digests it first and then it passes it off to our human body. And so gut microbiome is the primary way that our brain is functioning at a serotonin level. And there are nerves that directly connect our brain to our gut and from our gut to our brain. And so what they're saying is that the gut is like, if you look at, if you now you look at the science, they now say that the gut microbiome is the second brain. Depending on who you talk to, it could be the first brain or the second brain. We don't really know. And so the two major ways that your gut microbiome is um, not functioning well is having a dysfunction, and then it has a dysfunction in, in producing the right kinds of serotonin. 
is number one is uh, psychological trauma and chronic stress that uh, that is caused from someone's nervous system at a young age being um, really obstructed and halted and is in this constant cycle of trying to figure out what happened from that same level of higher nervous system grew. So then it stops, uh, which creates chronic stress on a daily basis. Like for example, like I, um, for me, a big reason why I had social anxiety was because I grew up in a town, in a neighborhood, in a school where there was no racial diversity. And also in America, this was post 9-11. And so, the, you know, if you were Middle Eastern, you got dumped on. And so for me, when I was a kid, I experienced a lot of racism and bullying and abuse. And so that was a big part of why I had social anxiety. And the craziest part, Dennis, was that I mostly got bullied and kind of experienced that stuff early on in elementary school and middle school. But by the time I got into high school, by the time I was like 16, 17, 18, there was nobody doing that. There was nobody abusing me. But yet, whenever my nervous system, my brain, my body, myself walked into a room, it would immediately trigger a fight or flight nervous system response that I could not control. That is now out of the conscious user's control. And so, you know, that's number one. Then number two is your dietary choices. And so those are the two main ways that your gut microbiome can be obstructed. And if it is, and it's in, it's dysfunctional, then you will have an issue with serotonin, which can lead people to having issues, severe issues with their mental health. And I talk about this in my book. There's a subsection that's called first my gut broke and then my brain broke. And I talk about the only times in my life where I was seriously depressed and I was in fact suicidal was when I was over 200 pounds because I was destroying myself through what I was eating and through the alcohol and the sugar and the energy drinks that I was drinking. And so that's a major, major way that people can begin to look at the, like the deep underlying fundamentals of their biochemistry. Because here's the, here's the reality. In my opinion, like if you have that kind of dysfunction and you're trying to read like all the books, you're trying to just understand stuff through your logical, through your thoughts, it's not really going to work. And so what I, the way that I think about this is like hardware and software. And hmm. so your software is like your mindset, your thoughts, you know, positive, negative thinking, um, maybe even your beliefs. Although that, I think that's half software, half uh, hardware. Um, and then you look at your hardware, which is whatever your software runs on. So like, what does our mindset run on? What does our mind run on? On our brain, which is a physical organ. Uh, a major reason why our brain was even created was because... Um, it was created to control our body. And so you have to take care of your physical health. And so when you kind of look at all these things, it's almost like a puzzle piece. And the, the analogy that I make in the book is like, you know, you could have the best software in the world. You could have the best version of iOS 13 from Apple. But if you're trying to install that on like a super old, outdated iPhone 2, man, you're going to be trying to hit that install button for a long time. And you're going to get frustrated at your life for falling into these same loops. And so, you know, personally for me, like I, I still have problems. I still definitely sometimes get anxiety, um, but I have really never, I haven't really struggled uh, as much as I've struggled like five years ago when I was kind of at my rock bottom. And I think a big part of that is because I have a foundational sort of fundamental built through my biochemistry. 
It's interesting there you said the beliefs are like hardware software because I think it's the same thing. I think once you take on a belief, it can become really a visceral experience. How did you yeah. start breaking through some of your most limiting beliefs? Or do you remember a belief that really held you back for a long time? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, I love the fact that you picked up on that because like this is what I learned too is like, again, I don't really think it's that important to get caught up on like the nuance of like, oh, is this software hardware? But what I really learned is that um, your brain can't grow new brain cells. Your brain can't grow new neurons. Your brain cannot um, sort of push past because beliefs are really just these, these, these hard spots that have stopped in our brain. That's really what they are. And most part has to do with it, has to go back to, again, what, I, what I, number one, what I talked about of our trauma. And so for me, like, I mean, man, I mean, we, there are so many beliefs that I broke. Like, I mean, like one of them, for example, like was the fact that like anybody in an authoritative position, I was afraid of. And the reason was, is like, I was yelled at many times by teachers, people in uniforms. And so that, that belief, I actually remember specifically when I realized it was a thing because the, the first part to kind of breaking a belief is to realize that it's happening. Right. And so that's probably the hardest part, right? Because like there's an analogy um, that, uh, that was named by some other author, but I'm forgetting, but he makes this analogy of two goldfish swimming in a goldfish bowl. And one goldfish says to the other, Hey, you know, how is the temperature of the water today? And the other goldfish says, what's water. And so beliefs are the water you know the 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 fish's perspective is the water is invisible but yet it's swimming around it all day but yet let's say if the fish wants to go above water and wants to go out of the bowl the water is controlling its behavior and that's what beliefs are that's what fear is that is whatever in life happens when it gets so stuck to the background of your life so for me that was like social anxiety that could be your beliefs and so for me that's the biggest part. And I remember I was actually at the grocery store and I remember, and this was, this was like two years, three years ago. So this wasn't even a far time ago. And, um, and I was like already meditating. I, I, I eat healthy. I was exercised. I slept well. So my whole vessel is functioning well. It's, it's able to be more perceptive than usual. And so I'm walking through the grocery store and I'm going through the aisles and I'm trying to pick food out. And I had my headphones in. And I, I don't remember whether it was music or a podcast I was listening to, but I was like, it was full volume. And I lift my head up from, the, from what I was looking at and I look ahead. And then all of a sudden, someone that works at the store and they wear uniforms, like these red uniforms, pops out. And all of a sudden, like, I felt my nervous system freak out in a way that I hadn't felt it before. And I was just sitting there in the grocery store and I was like, wait, why did that just happen? And then I just, and then literally my mind flashes back to all the other times in my life where that's happened. And it was this belief that had happened due to previous teachers, other people from authority figures that I was then super afraid of. And so um, that was a belief, for example, that I broke. Another belief that I had to break was the fact that um, the reason why I felt like I couldn't change who I was was because I would meet the same people in life. So like every day I would show up to the same classroom or the same office and I would see Susie and Dan and Kevin, right? And so if I was facing social anxiety, 
but I wanted to take a behavior that was out of sort of my character's normal set of behaviors. That would seem foreign. That would seem fake. And I would be like, no, I'm not going to change my behavior because I want to be the same character to all these people. And so that was a major belief that I realized and I broke because that's not how you grow. And we all change all the time. And so that was another belief. I mean, I could, I could keep going, but it's so, back to that so belief, important. I had a very similar belief. I had the same belief. That is a very hard thing to do when you're around the same people all the time. If you do something a bit different, then it's just, it's weird. And it's like, you don't know what exactly to do. Then how did you change that? Yeah. So the biggest thing that I had to realize was that like this character that I had built, it, it wasn't actually my story. This was a survival story that was built by a part of my brain called the ego, which is the part of our brain where it's located is the lateral prefrontal cortex. And this is like the chatter that is responsible for keeping us alive, for keeping us to survive. And the big part about this is the brain would rather create a narrative in which you can just narrowly survive in than to be happy because that's not how our brains were created. You know, and so happiness has its, has its role in sort of survival but it's not the main objective. And so for me, a major way that I had to break that was just by understanding that this whole story of who I was wasn't even mine. And it was based off my ego. And it was based off the fact that I had sort of created like this defaulted character, almost like in a video game, almost like in a movie where like he would say the same, like if you were reading like a movie script where like the actor has to say this, this and that, I would almost say that every single time. And so, um, a major part of that was, was realizing that. And then another part of that was just um, like, you know, instead of focusing on going back to that old story, but it's using and trying to create a new narrative. And so for me, the, one of the most important things was that, you know, I, I didn't really have a future for myself. I never really thought of myself in the future because whenever I did, that's when my anxiety would start to trigger and so if you don't have a future for yourself, then you don't have anything to hope for. And if you don't have anything to hope for, which is tomorrow could be better than today, then that's when you get people to do a lot of destructive things like suicide to drugs to, to other violent acts. And so hope was definitely an essential aspect in constructing sort of a future version that I could just work on, right? Because human psychology says like, if you're trying to not do something, or if you're trying to not think about something, your brain will think about it, think about it, think about it, or do it and do it and do it. And it'll put you in this cycle. And so the biggest aspect is, is to take like a, uh, like an additives approach. And I actually recommend this with food too, but it's like, instead of me focusing on, oh, what should I say to this person or, or that? I focus on like, hey, I'm a person who's a totally normal person who has been through X, Y, and Z problems. And I realize that and now i'm on the conscious path to become a better version of myself in the capacities and and pillars of life that are really important and what does that look like that looks like doing these things every day that looks like um focusing on this every day and so that for me was a major major aspect of overall of how i was able to um break that belief and i mean the thing is is too is like um i mean the like the thing that i talk about is like I think it's like, I think the problems that we have in life that we almost end up developing or creating or being born with, or who knows, I think that to be honest with you, uh, a lot of these problems are going to change, but they're always going to be there. And so I think that 
for example, like when I look at the first 18 years of my life, social anxiety, you know, held like controlled my life by, by a neck death grip. It controlled 99% of my life. Now it's more like 2%, maybe 5%. And so it's all about that. And it's all about constantly developing these tools, realizing these different things. Like, I don't know about you, but the last month I've had like three major (laughs) realizations about the way that I think about life itself. And it's that constant ability. Because the thing is, Dennis, is that the ego, yeah, the, the narrative, the character that it's telling itself, it could be about like trying to break these beliefs that we're talking about on a podcast of things that happened to our past, but it could also be happening right now because the ego is not something that dies. It is constantly, constantly trying to find new narratives, new stories, new, new things about you to almost take a hold of and build a home of. And usually inside of labels, like, you know, for example, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a best-selling author now, you know, I'm Mark Petri best-selling author. Um, you know, I'm so much better than people. I'm way more intellectual. And so what'll happen is when you build an ego in that, yeah, you might gain some confidence. You might gain some, what I call in the book, false confidence from that, but you also gain the negativity from that. So like if I go and I read like a negative Amazon review of my book, that's going to destroy me (laughs) because I am the, the author. And so it works both ways. And so it's something that is always, always ongoing. And so right when you think that like, you're like a guru or right when you think that like you've conquered this, that's when you know your ego is just finding a home. <laughs> no, I can relate. <laughs> I can relate to that too. Yeah, the thing is, yeah, if you if you're if you're it inclined never ends. to identify with that, it's the positive and negative both kind of mess you up. So then, how do you, as a person that is successful objectively, how do you strive for a better future and still remain in the present moment and not identified with these things of success? Yeah, man. So it's interesting. So. Um, you know, friend, a friend of mine one time asked me this. He said, this is how you know who is future visioned and who only cares about right now. And there's a difference between people being present and people caring about just right now. Mm. Right. So for example, he told me that if you go to a coffee shop, the person who orders like black coffee or just like black coffee with like milk or black coffee with cream versus someone who orders like uh, a mocha frappe chocolate chip uh, culotta coffee. There's a difference between someone who drinks the coffee to get the caffeine in the future that doesn't really care about the taste. They say black, they say milk, maybe they like it, maybe they don't, I don't know. And there's a person who, you know, not only puts in you probably like a ton of sugar, but a ton of flavorings because they want it to taste good right now. And so that's like an analogy that I kind of think about this because if I cared about right now, then I would be eating cheeseburgers and French fries and and I'd be drinking right now. (laughs) And so for me, like for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe this is just the way that I'm built. Maybe this is because I'm more anxiety prone and people who are more anxiety prone, their brain focuses more on the future. Um, because I've just gone through life, I now realize like cause and effect of like, I'm, I'm not going to sacrifice um, the future to get some present moment of pleasure. And mm-hmm. so that to me is a, is a major thing. And so I think um, how, does, how to bridge these two worlds, present and future, 
I think meditation is, uh, is extremely, extremely important. And I think it's an activity that can't be substituted in my opinion. Um, other things that get you in the present moment is, um, when your body is not freaking out, when your body at a biochemical level is not freaking out, it will be much easier to be in the present moment. Like if you've been able to sleep well for the recommended national average of like seven, eight hours, your body's no longer freaking out. And, and what happens is if you don't sleep well, um, that completely changes how all of your biochemical reactions throughout the day happen. And so um, that's another way. Another way is, um, you know, like uh, um, uh, what I call practicing emotional flexibility. And so what I'm talking about is like as an entrepreneur, you know, sometimes the mode that I'll be in if I'm like in a meeting versus the mode that I want to be in with my family and how, if I ha I'm doing like 6,000 other things, how can I make sure I'm still present when I'm with my family versus just being caught up in work, even if I'm not on my phone, but just in my head, hmm. that's been massive. Again, meditation is insane for that. And then I also think it's, it's the ability to merge your emotional and your logical part of your brain. And so this, a lot of times what happens is um, when, it, when we go through a psychological trauma, the logical and emotional parts of our brain come up with different reasons. And so, for example, like the, the logical side of our brain is actually what ends up creating a lot of these limiting beliefs. And so, for example, like I will have, you know, I'll go through racism. I'll go through period. I'll go. My trauma was having low self-esteem. And so the logical part of my brain will tell me, oh, this is happening because you're stupid. Oh, this is happening because, um, you know, you're, you're, you're dumb or you don't deserve it. or You're not worthy. And the emotional part of your brain will come in to almost re to enforce that. And so a logical sentence can't hurt us. But when you logically think I suck or I'm not worthy, then the emotional part of our brain really seeps that in. And so it's about merging both of these things. And an analogy that one of my favorite authors talks about, Mark Manson, is, um, you know, when you're driving a car, the, uh, the driver, the person who has their hands on the steering wheel is the logical part of your brain. And the emotional part of your brain is like a baby sitting in the back of the car in a car seat. And you can see each other through the mirror. And the baby all of a sudden cries because the emotional part of us is much more dominant usually. And so the baby, the emotional part will start to cry and, and fuss and, and, and yell. And then the logical part of our brain will look up in the rear view mirror and look at the baby and see what it's doing. And the next thing you know, because he or she is looking up, now they're swerving on the highway, even though the hands are in their wheel. And then all of a sudden they'll look back up and be like, oh my God, what just happened? That's why we get a lot of people that are doing the same habits, the same behaviors again and again and again. It's because they haven't merged the logical, emotional side of their brain. Hmm. What can help with that? Um, writing, uh, anything that can help you process things, meditation again, uh, therapy, all of these things can really be beneficial for bridging these two parts of your brain. And again, this never ends, but the more and more you can do this, the better. And especially for guys like you and I, we have been taught to suppress the emotional mm. part of our brain. And, you know, we think that's better. It's not. 
Like that's why you get a lot, like that's why people's behavior, it's not as direct as you make it seem like, oh, why doesn't that person just do this? Why doesn't that person, why don't they do that? I mean, I ask myself the same thing and it has to do with these two parts of our brain that are actually controlling our lives, even though we think about it not. And then also, you know, how our, how our trauma comes into play, how our biochemistry comes into play and how all that sort of interacts with the environment that you not only create for yourself, but then the, the random environment that you are thrown in, whether that's random people or, or circumstances where you're quarantined in a house all of a sudden. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to sort of go into here, but that's like the general idea, if that made sense. No, that's good. Yeah, I'd vouch for the writing and the journaling and meditation and the therapy as well to get things out because I found that you become less reactive too, like in your body as well, because you become more aware of the thoughts in your body. You're just like less reactive to the same patterns all the time. So. Yeah, I mean, meditation is, uh, Sam Harris has a quote on this. He says, meditation prepares you for the worst day of your life. And I mean, dude, honestly, like there have been many days and I've been meditating every day for the most part since, um, since like 2016. And uh, yeah, I mean, I like the way that I process, like even, even things that if they happened then, back then, I probably would have broken down. Now it's just like, you, you, you get it. Because I think the big thing with meditation too is like this emotional, this logical part of our brain with our nervous system is producing anywhere from what science tells us 25 to 60,000 thoughts a day in the average person's brain. These thoughts, these are the thoughts that are running our character on a script. Like if you look at a movie script, these thoughts, these lines, this is like what the character is going to say. And so a lot of the times it's the same exact thing from yesterday, even though we don't think so. And so when you begin to, um, to look at that, you realize that not all these thoughts are, are legitimate. Not all these thoughts are real. Not all these thoughts are like real things you need to worry about because it's just your brain survival just batting off. And so when you can understand that when you close your eyes and you meditate and you see these thoughts come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go, you almost see thoughts in your brain almost like waves hitting a shoreline of an ocean. And the waves never end. And so when you begin to understand that, you begin to understand that our brain thinks a thought the same way, the same way that our heart beats. Yeah, it never, never stops. It never ends. And so yeah. if you're playing in this game because you have anxiety or depression or from various issues, you're never going to win. It's just impossible. The brain is the best master at the game that it's playing. And so the reason why I talk a lot about biochemistry and things like meditation is because it gives you a different angle to approach the same problem. And there's a lot of people that are just trying to brute force, brute force this issue and they're not getting very far. And so I think that's where, you know, uh, you know, lessons from, from experts, from people, from authors, science, when you look, begin to look at these things, there are a lot of things that we can begin to do to, to ease this uh, problem that we have. And, and then to even conceptually understand it, whether it's on a podcast or someone reading a book. So it's, it's all important stuff. Mm, that's good. Yeah, I think otherwise you're kind of you're stuck in a maze. Like you're, when you're trying to you're stuck in the, the matrix. Yeah, exactly. You're never gonna get out. It's a, it's uh it's the feedback loop from hell. Yeah. And I was I was stuck in it for a decade, man. It's terrible, terrible. Yeah. At least you got out, though. Jesus. Yeah. It's like it's it's mad. Well, that's what it is, man. It's like once you get out, then you have to then you have to throw the ladder down. Then you have to throw the rope down to help other people. That's the only reason why I made a book. You know, I could have, honestly, man, I could have made way more money 
if I made a book on like podcasting or, or, or branding or something like mm-hmm. that, I could have made way more money. And so for me, this was so important because it's like, there are literally people suffering about this and they don't even, society's not giving them the right kinds of solutions the same way that I kind of felt when I was going through it. And I kind of had to find my own way. So mm-hmm. that's like the number one reason. Where did you, because you mentioned your book at the sense of purpose and direction. When did you start finding that in your life? Um, probably right after, uh, um, so for me, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of fell into rock bottom in end of 2015, 2016, beginning of, and then I began to sort of like put the brakes on my destructive behavior and just sort of like get a pause on things. And then it was probably by the end of that year in 2016, where I really like, where I look back on now where that was like a real sort of a line in the sand moment where I began to really understand like who I was, the responsibility of my life, this mission that I'm on. And of course it's, it's changed and whatnot, but like November of 2016 was when I really began to understand this and begin to do like, this is, this is the job. This is the primary hustle of my life. It's not my, it's not my actual job. It's not the way that I make money. It's living my life and kind of upholding this, mm. um, like oath. So yeah, it was towards the end of 2016. So that was like a draw the line in the sand moment for you, was it? Yeah, I mean, it was totally crazy. And again, again, like ever since then, I've just been in and out of problems all the time. But now I'm equipped with a much better skill set, much better tool set. And so new problems are always going to arise, like what's happening right now that is going to force us to create new solutions. And then now after this, whether it's on a health side or on an economic or on an economic side because of what's happening anyone who goes through this tra- traumatic event and it lets them form them and grow them they're going to be like this is never going to happen to me again i'm going to make sure my health is at the best of its ability i'm going to make sure that my economic stability is at the highest it could possibly be so that if another recession does happen it can't touch me you know what i mean so it's like yeah. i think that's the real power of it sink to your level of preparation yeah the, actually, you're kind of touching on a point I wanted to come to. You mentioned in your book that personal development is like a non-linear process. Just uh, expand a little bit on that because I think that's very useful because I've had a similar experience where it's not like from day one to, to now, it's always been incrementally getting better. There's been like twists and turns and like it, oftentimes I'll feel like I'm not making progress. I am making progress. That type of thing. Oh, dude. I mean, I thought... I- I mean, dude, I think writing my book was probably the worst thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> it was terrible um, in the sense of like, yeah, I mean, there were definitely moments where I was in like a state of flow and I was just like writing for two hours, but there were many times where I was like, what the hell am I even writing? Like, why, why, does, it, why does anybody even care? And so, I mean, I, there have been so many times where I was like, I should just stop doing this. But um, you always come back to, this is going to be very meaningful. You know, this might suck right now, but in the long term, it's going to be very, very meaningful. And so I think the importance of that is just uh, like actually making it important because like you and I have written books and uh, I remember before I had so many book ideas, but it's like only until you actually sit down and you literally, I don't want to say force yourself to do it, but it's almost like you sit down and you force yourself to do it, or you're able to find ways to put it into your schedule where you can be in a state of flow in writing. And so like, honestly, like it's something that was terrible, but it's like a marathon. And so like right now I'm redoing uh, different parts of my book right now. And I'm updating the whole thing because I love writing. 
And so, uh, and then there's also like a lot that I could get into and some things that I could fix and whatnot. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. I don't know if I answered your question correctly. No, that's actually very useful. The way you said that, um, you actually said that why would people even care? And I found that kind of funny because that's the way I would be thinking. But like you're somebody who's already got a really successful podcast and you're even thinking about that when you're writing a book with an audience that you still have. Dude, I mean, here's the, here's the thing, man. I mean, everyone has these thoughts. Like that's just the truth. And I mean, like you might have people that tell you they don't have those thoughts and like they just may be a very rare percentage of people. But dude, everybody gets these thoughts. They just don't talk about it. Mm. Everybody does. And so dude, like all the authors that I, not all, again, not, no, no, no blanket statements, but like a vast majority of authors, a vast majority of billionaires, people that I know, um, again, not all of them, but a lot of them have terrible thoughts and they get afraid, but they just end up doing it anyway. Yeah, yeah you just have to ignore them. I've only ever just had to ignore it to keep going. Yeah, like sustainably, yeah, like sustainably ignore it. You know, like, like meditate, make sure you're healthy and then yeah. like get you get a better spot. But if you're just like trying to ignore it by like drinking alcohol or like just doing crazy, di- then, then, then uh, that's going to come back and bite you. you know? No, it's kind of like gaining perspective on it and like uh, getting to the core of that actual thought as well. A lot of times it's not grounded in anything or it's grounded in something that you were afraid of, or like you can get to the core of that. So it's, uh, it's good. Yeah, definitely. Totally agree. Cool, man. Thanks for, thanks for sharing everything today, Mark. Where would people find you online and find your podcast? Yeah. So the best place is just my website, uh, Mark Metry, M-A-R-K-M-E-T-R-Y.com, podcast, book, uh, anything I've got going on will be there. Dennis, thank you so much for having me on, man. This was killer. Yeah, great, man. So until next time, have fun and enjoy the process. Enjoy the process.